Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back. Wow, can you believe it? We've already passed 550 episodes of Suncast, all because you keep coming here, pressing play and impressing me with your consistency and persistence. I promise that your time here will be doubled, tripled. Gosh, the return on your time investment today, I don't know if it can be measured. Look, thanks for lending me your ears and that one non-renewable resource you've got. And that, of course, is your time. Wherever you are, you could choose any number of podcasts or things to be doing with your time right now. So let's get into today's conversation. The entrepreneur I want to bring you today is no stranger to high tech, high growth, and even high barriers to entry. John Belazare is a versatile CEO and a serial entrepreneur who has successfully founded and scaled multiple technology companies over a more than 20-year career. He's currently the CEO of a company maybe you've heard of, maybe not, called Saluna Computing. But let me tell you, it is helping shape the future of how renewable energy development works. And I love their motto, sell every megawatt. I have a penchant for branding and messaging. And let me tell you, John knows how to nail both of those. And his team has put together an all-star cast. Before Saluna, John was the founder and CEO of a transformative insurance software company that was acquired by Guidewire and Theory Center, an e-commerce software company acquired by BEA. And before that, he worked on Intel's digital enterprise group. We talk all about his journey as the son of immigrants, the hope of entrepreneurship and American success. John truly embodies it if anybody I've ever interviewed on this show has. I hope that you'll stick around today to hear his founder's journey. It is truly remarkable. And the way that he and his team at Saluna Computing are addressing the number one problem facing renewables in the market right now is definitely a novel, interesting, and compelling one that I think you will want to hear. If you like what you're listening to, I hope you'll subscribe to the show because that's how you will know that you won't miss out on any of our twice weekly content just like this tactical, practical advice on Tuesdays. And of course, these deep dive executive profiles on Thursdays. And you can check out more than 550 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. Gosh, I've waited a long time to say that 550. Thank you. Special thanks to all of you who have clicked through the buttons on the website at mysuncast.com to the various ways to connect with me among them, those who've reached out for coaching or to join Resource Labs. I can't thank you enough. Our community is growing and I along with you. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as promised, today's conversation is going to be a wide-ranging look at how to provide 
firm, reliable power using renewables, mitigating intermittency, helping IPPs deal with one of the things that has been the most niggling problem, as it were, and that is curtailment using software and hardware solutions in a really novel way, one that many, many people have talked about. Few have delivered on one such company that has delivered on is today's company uh, CEO, Mr. John Belazare of Saluna. And John, I'm so glad to finally have you here on Suncast. Welcome. Thanks, Nico. I'm excited to be here too. I've heard a lot about this podcast. I'm now a fan. And so uh, it's great to be able to uh, create some content with you. John, I really want to start here with a little bit of a more simple premise for those who have no idea about what Saluna is. Could you describe the problem that you have developed Saluna to solve as though you're talking to my pre-engineer 11-year-old son? What I would tell your son is that the grid, which is the source for all of our electricity, is going through a change. It's replacing the legacy power plants, power plants that were fired by coal and oil and gas, power plants that are controllable by the grid system itself. You literally can turn a dial and turn the power plant up when power is needed, turn it down. It's transitioning away from those because those are um, helping to make the climate uh, hotter <laughs> and colder than it has in the past. And one solution is for us to shift to more uh, sustainable green electricity uh, generation. That means finding power plants that are building power plants that are, use the wind power, power plants that use the sun, and power plants that use rain for power. And the biggest unspoken problem, it's kind of a secret actually in the renewable energy space, is that up to about a third, so if there's like 10 units, then, then you know three of those units never actually make it to the grid. And that problem is called curtailment. And the reason is because the other power plants I used to talk about, I, I, I just spoke about, they can be controlled by the grid, but the renewable energy power plants Mother Nature controls when that power gets generated. So sometimes there's more energy than is needed, and sometimes there's not enough energy than is needed. And when there's more energy that's needed, that extra energy that can't get onto the grid gets wasted. And that is known as something called curtailment. I think we could spend an entire episode, John, on just how <laughs> curtailment matters and how what you said, the secret, the dirty secret to the intermittency and lack of control by the utility, not, not lack of control of the asset itself, has right. resulted in this underutilization of, of the asset that is a power plant created by renewable power, the sun, the wind, the movement of the earth and the tides. Introduce me, therefore, to Saluna. Why is what you've created going to solve this problem? Why should I care? That's a good question. The reason you should care is because you have to start with what solutions are there today? Mm. What are the other options? And we're essentially providing a, a, a new option. There are two main ways you can solve that problem. People say, oh, I see. So it, the energy is wasted. Well, John, can't mm. you just store it? And I say, yeah, actually, there's, uh, you can put batteries close to the power plant. And those batteries can store that extra energy. And then when the grid needs that energy, it can be sent into the grid. But there's another challenge with that in that batteries aren't really scalable. They can't really store that much energy mm -hmm. and they can't really hold on to the energy long enough for it to become useful for 
putting it out to the grid. There's also some environmental and safety concerns with batteries as well. Yeah. So it still has a long way to go to reach the point where it's the perfect solution for this problem. Yeah. I'll interject there. We had an interview recently, if folks don't understand what John just said, that effectively points to the fact that a battery needs to affect it. It needs to be in constant motion, moving electrons mm-hmm. back and forth across that. We'll call it the barrier in the in between and the catalyst in order to be optimally functional to actually be cost effective. So keep going. So the other solution, people say, well, John, can't you just move the energy? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, yeah, actually, when, uh, you know, when everybody's asleep in the middle of the country, I guess you could put the electrons on power lines and zap them across to Atlanta where everybody's party- partying right now. The problem with that is it takes a heck of a long time to oh. build those, those power lines. So they're not an immediate solution. In fact, I've seen power line projects that are decades in the making and still haven't uh, been set up. And that's because it crosses different um, territories. You have to convince people. There's all sorts of challenges that you have to encounter with a, a project that big. Yeah. But computing, computing is ready now. Computing mm-hmm. is a great user of energy. Depending on the design, you can instantly convert electrons to computing power. Mm-hmm. Everyone on this phone, uh, on this uh, podcast is listening to this great audio on a, a supercomputer that's in your pocket. That's right. Well, we forget that if this is, this might be your fourth or fifth generation of that phone, you've been collecting data, pictures, text, all sorts of content. And that goes into a cloud, which gets processed by these massive computers all over the world. And so computing is this thing that can be done anywhere, especially specific type of computing that's resilient to power loss. And therefore, you, if you could bring that computing to those power plants that have that wasted energy and build a, spec, a specifically designed data center that converts that energy into computing, well, you've got a very scalable solution to this problem that's ready now. That's the big difference. And that's exactly what we do here at Saluna. We build green data centers that are placed right at the power plant that has this curtailment issue. We buy that wasted energy and then we convert it into a global computing resource for specific applications that are compute intensive and resilient to intermittent computing availability, something we call batchable computing. This is fascinating to me. It sounds like you're on the surface creating a product that effectively would compete with something something like Azure or AWS. Is that Appropriate to put That's it right. We, we like to say that Azure, AWS, the Google uh, Cloud uh, platforms, the big hyperscalers, imagine they're like a, a, a giant cake and that cake has all every single flavor <laughs> that you might imagine. Mm-hmm. It's, like a, it's like the perfect dessert. Yeah. We don't try to make the same cake mm-hmm. and put it with the green plant. Actually, we're just a slice of that cake and we're supporting very specific applications that can live in these types of environments. So we won't run your ERP system. We won't run your e-commerce platform. And we only will run certain types of applications. And so we are going after those markets, but with a very niche focus play. So who then do you sell to and what problems are you solving for those clients? So we sell to a number of customers in the, in the near term, we do computing like crypto mining. So mm-hmm. we're selling this, the, the, the security to the, the large crypto networks. That's their need is uh, robust uh, security, continuous uh, support on the platform in a distributed way. And it's got to be cost effective. The other constituency, what we call in our phase two business, is to go to traditional enterprises 
that have lots of applications, probably have big contracts with the big hyperscalers, mm -hmm. and they're looking for a more sustainable IT strategy. How can I make the computing that I need, which is becoming a bigger portion of their budgets now, how can I make that computing less expensive, mm. more sustainable, and ultimately allow me to meet the ESG goals that are becoming top of mind right now? So what we do is we go to them and we say, hey, we can guarantee you that you're going to run in green data centers. We want one to 2% of your compute load, that compute load that has this characteristics where it's very compute intensive, it's big data and analytics applications that need to run in the background. And it's cost effective, you know, for a 10th of the price, you can move to a more sustainable platform. That's our pitch to those markets. So let me, let me see. I could meet my ESG goals while reducing the cost for 2% of business. my computing and my business by 90%. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a no brainer. So before we dive into the technology and how you make this work and why your background is optimally oriented for this and, and you were effectively, I'll say chosen, but while you are the right leader for it, I'd love to pique folks' interest as well around some of the accomplishments this Luna has enjoyed or appreciated as it were. I know that you are now a publicly traded company. Let's talk about the pathway to becoming a publicly traded company, how you can scale a, effectively an infrastructure and technology play that requires an intensive amount of operational budget. Can you talk a bit about kind of where, how you reached scale and the decision to, to go public through a reverse merger and uh, sort of what, what you achieved thus far? Sure. So we started out focusing on a strategy that starts small. So we bought a, a data center up in, in uh, uh, Seattle area, small sort of uh, three megawatt facility. We retrofitted it with uh, the technology that we had developed and got that to run. And that was connected to, to hydro, so excess mm -hmm. hydropower. Then we bought another one in Kentucky, also hydro environment, uh, a bit bigger, 25 megawatts. And all of that was done through primarily private equity. And then we moved to how do we scale that again, but this time build the data center from zero, from scratch, mm -hmm. using the Saluna model, our architecture, our software. And that's when we started working with a, uh, a public company that was interested in the space and, and partnering with them. And we basically joint, uh, developed a joint venture where we would build a data center. Mm -hmm. We did it so well and finished it so fast that it just made sense to, we should consider some sort of strategic combination. Right. And so we also felt that if the company could be public at the time, that would be a great source of relatively cost-effective capital, scalable uh, and we also wanted to have the flexibility to invest, have investors at the project level because we're building essentially a project focused company. So last year we went public, uh, in November of last year, we did a reverse merger. We stepped up, uh, got to, got to ring the closing bell at, Na at NASDAQ and, uh, renamed the, the, the parent company to Saluna and started focusing on building out our our pipeline. At the time of the merger, we had about 300 megawatts in our pipeline. Mm -hmm. We have uh, a number of projects in Texas that we started to build out. Uh, our flagship is Dorothy. We raised over $100 million through the, the public process. And then we also raised capital at the project level from probably one of the leading sustainability clean tech VCs called uh, Spring Lane Capital. They're mm -hmm. focused on helping companies like us build sort of these the, the initial versions of our project model make it more robust and mature and then scale it from there 
where the large players like the Brookfields, mm-hmm. the Macquaries of the world can come in and, and partner with us to build these projects uh, at scale. And are you going to retain the equity in those projects or is the idea like, exactly. typical, okay, so you're going to own these assets. Yeah. So the parent company invests. And uh, so think of the, the holding company almost as a, as a general partner in a fund and each project is a fund and you can invest equity and debt at the project level. We retain a portion of that. And then we also get a portion of the future profits uh, as well in the project. So everybody gets their return and then we, we have a long-term asset. And then we use that asset to build the computing business inside. We generate revenue that way as well. So it's a, it's, it's a true next generation infrastructure company with a very I flexible. It. I love it. And I love that you did it as a reverse merger. I, I bet you often get asked, is it, was it a SPAC? Gosh, what a, what a time when you went public, everybody was t- talking. Yeah, everybody SPACs. was doing SPACs. Yeah. yeah. SPACs kind of scared the hell out of us because, you know, you start out with this multi-billion dollar valuation. <laughs> you got to grow into it. So we wanted to take it one step at, at a time. Yeah, well, I'm sure that uh, the folks at QuantumScape would have preferred first <laughs> manager. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. that's for a different podcast. I got to ask, yeah, what's yeah. in the names of the projects? I think your first was Sophie, which we have a per- particular affinity for, as one of our team members is named Sophie. But Sophie and Dorothy, any what are the what's the correlation? There? Yeah, so there is a theme there. We we name all of our data centers after famous women scientists that were catalyzers. We call them badass catalyzers because we're, we're we're using data centers to catalyze renewables. So Sophie is named after Sophie Wilson, who is uh, the designer of the ARM processor, which is the chipset process that uh, most of our machines and phones are based around. And she was all focused around developing an efficient way to design those processors and its use of energy. So makes a good correlation to what we're doing. So our first Greenfield project in Kentucky is, is, is named after uh, Sophie uh, everything about the site uh, is tuned to their specific background personality. There's a there's a special logo for the for the for the data center. Uh, Dorothy is named after Dorothy Vaughn, the human computer who was on the uh, Hidden Figures uh, team that helped to get us to the moon. And uh, of course, you know she's a tech, te- uh, Texas native. Uh, you know Dorothy was about new frontiers, and the Dorothy project really is our first flagship integrated to renewables project. And so we felt it appropriate to name it uh, after her. And we have a whole host of women scientists and data center projects that will be, will be focused on. Marie Curie is named after the woman who discovered uh, radiation. So we try to pay homage to, you know, great scientists and women scientists who really just sort of changed the world quietly. And uh, it's about time they get some recognition. Man, I love it. I love your story more and more. The longer I get, the more time I get. Uh, and hopefully, you know, our family listening to this is, is, is feeling the same way. I'd like to give folks a chance then. I feel like we've got our head, hopefully, in the last 20 minutes wrapped around kind of what is Luna. But who is hmm. John Belazaire? Let's talk about that a minute. Can you take me back to young John Belazaire? Growing up in New York at a time when, you know, as you as a, as we joked, uh, New York was uh, sort of the, char- the main character in sort of uh, the the gangs of New York, the the grungy yeah, yeah. New York. Talk a bit about the relationship to New York and your family as immigrants that formed the early person that that became this. I'll call you a tech entrepreneur, tech icon that I think will be remembered for the bold state steps that you've taken. Uh, well, yes, I did grow up in New York in the, in the late seventies, eighties and, uh, New York was very different. I mean, I, 
I'd almost describe New York <laughs> as a Disneyland at this point. You know, <laughs> Disney probably has a lot of properties here, although it's it's uh, it's 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 gotten a little dusty since the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll sort through that. But when I was growing up, it was a very different New York. It was rough and tumble. Um, you know, the, the city was going bankrupt. Uh, it was very unsafe walking to school. You know, you, it, it was a 50, 50 chance that you, you didn't get mugged, <laughs> Yeah, you know? So I grew up in that environment. We didn't have much money. My, my mother uh, came to the States, brought me to the States when I was mm-hmm. about five or six. I'm one of five kids that mm-hmm. she's, she had. So I have an older brother, two older sisters and a, a younger uh, brother. Okay. So you're fourth. And I'm the fourth. Yeah. I'm the fourth of her, of, of her first marriage my, with, with my dad. Mm-hmm. And a little story here, you know, my mom is, is probably the person who has helped to create me, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen the grit that she's been to her incredible tenacity, just like her ability to take risk. She uh, had the three kids in, in Haiti. My dad uh, left Haiti and moved to the Bahamas. He was a journeyman that, you know, worked with his hands uh, yeah. doing towel work and stuff like that, helped to build some of the, the early hotels there. Wow. And he left Haiti because he feared for his life. You know, yeah. um, for those who may or may not know Haitian history, we, we had two big dictators uh, in our history from the Duvalier family, the father and the son. And uh, while the father was in power, they were concerned about uh, their safety. And so he, he left to the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom didn't hear from him for a long time. Yeah. Actually, I didn't hear from him for nearly nine years. Wow. So he really was trying to sort of <laughs> stay, stay low, I guess. Yeah. So she decides at some point that she's, I got to go find out where did this guy go? And yeah. so she, she gets on a boat, nearly dies uh, on the, on the way to the Bahamas. She mm. ultimately finds him and I am the product or proof <laughs> that she found him. And, you know, 25 years later, uh, her son is, you know, selling his first company and, you know, changing, changing, you know, our lives, uh, overall. Yeah. And I think that just came from the fact that she always pushed us to, uh, you know, be hard workers, uh, value education and really push ourselves, uh, as much as possible to achieve, you know, the, the, the greatest heights. And she says, you know, uh, you know, I, I will never, you know, take any kind of support. I will always work to give you what you need. Keep, make sure you're fed and everything else is up to you. And so yeah. I really took that to heart. You know, I've, I've been able to, unfortunately, to be involved in a lot of different things uh, over the course of the last 25 years or so. And I can attribute that to the fact that I grew up in a rough and tumble city, yeah. <laughs> raised uh, essentially by a single parent. Uh, my stepfather was there, but I think my mom really was the, 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 the main rearer of everybody and raised by an incredible woman. And that has really set me up on a strong foundation to take all of the punches that come with being an entrepreneur, you know? And so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's John Belazare, I'd say. Well, it's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, small early taste of, of John. And, uh, your story is remarkable in many ways, not the least of which is the, the triumph of an immigrant family. And, yeah. you know, as you said, your fourth of, of five children by the age of 25 had reached financial freedom, had reached the entrepreneurial dream. Uh, I think it's fun to think about the connections from your early career to your later career. First project for Saluna was in Seattle. Tell me about your first trip out to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. We, we, um, this particular site is, uh, east of 
the Seattle, the, 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 you know, the main city there. And it's in the, uh, uh Wenatchee area near the Colorado, the, the, the big river system there, the Columbia river. And you know, it was funny. I, uh, I was in that area in college cause I started my career at Intel in, in Oregon. And so I would drive up, uh, to Seattle, up to Vancouver. It'd be like a guy's weekend, <laughs> go, 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 go having fun. So I was already used to that area, but what I wasn't used to was the rural area where our initial facility was based. Um, very few jobs, very few industry. But what I didn't know was that that area is actually a really big data center place because of the, the, the power of the river and the hydro energy and so forth. And so the facility that we bought was a facility that was in bankruptcy, uh, a former sort of crypto focused uh project and we took that and basically re-architected it around the saloon away so lots of driving uh for the team and lots of learning around you know local uh, utility laws and how to retrofit a, a facility that was poorly designed into one that would become the first test of what we were talking about you touched on intel being your first job let's talk let's sort of paint the picture for folks of, of how you first got into the the computing industry, where computer science began to fascinate you and how you built the, the shops, as it were, in your early career at Intel that would help you become an entrepreneur. Why did you choose Intel out of college specifically? So I got into computers in junior high school. You know, a lot in life is, is about luck and timing to some extent. And I know people say that all the time, but it's so true. <laughs> I was lucky that the New York City public school system was building a new series of schools. And my junior high school was one of the first schools that they had built out to expand the school system because there was a the junior high that I was planning to go to was, I mean, it literally had like these, these stories of the boogeyman and everything yeah. <laughs> getting beat up in the bathroom. And I'm like, oh God, I, I, I hope I don't go there. And we went to Maggie L. Walker, which was a new, new school. And it was designed basically around a new education platform that the city was looking into. And that included more uh, science, mathematics, and computing. So we had a computing class. There was a professor there who essentially, uh, you know, gave us assignments and was teaching us, you know, about the computing. And he noticed that I had a real keen interest in it. And and by the way, this this uh, this teacher was was blind. So the fact that he... What? He was legally blind, so he looked at the world literally through like a through like a straw, <laughs> and uh, he noticed that I had a keen interest in this. And he says, "You know, if you really like this, I can give you some extra assignments that you can take home." And so I did do that. I saved up my allowances and monies that my dad would give me, and I bought a TRS eighty, also known as a Trash eighty. <laughs> so it was like a keyboard style, almost like a Commodore but made by Radio Shack. And uh, that became my primary computer. And he gave me this book with all these programs. And I wrote a speech, a text-to-speech program in my bedroom. And my my mother's sister, uh, my aunt was here visiting and she comes upstairs. She's like, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, look, I, you got to see this. And I, and I say, you know, and it says, hello. <laughs> and she says, wow, very, very nice, impressive, but uh, make, it, make it speaks French. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a cultural you just you're touching on it very slightly and you used her accent which is lovely so think of, like that epitomizes the grit of your family it's like yeah well can you do more yeah can you do more exactly yeah. that's exactly my takeaway on that she's like can you do more you know and i did focus on that 
from that moment on, I mean, I was, I was so keenly focused on computing. I just loved computing. I wanted to learn everything, everything I could about it. And, uh, all through high school, uh, I was also in a computing program there. And, uh, I, I started a, a number of my little new ventures, <laughs> selling computer discs to students and everything. <laughs> so I can finance my own computer, a uh, much bigger system desktop. And so naturally I went into university focused on computer science. And while I was in university, uh, Intel had a program called the Intel scholars program. So I, I went to uh, school at Cornell, both my undergrad and grad, Intel would go to some of these top universities and identify high potential uh, students of color that they wanted to build a pipeline inside of Intel in a number of different parts of the organization. And the way the program worked is every summer you would go to Intel and you would shadow or intern with someone that was in your field. So you can see what what does a computer scientist do in the real world? What does an electrical engineer do in the real world? What does a chemical engineer do in the real world? So they would have students that go out there. They were based in Beaverton, Oregon. So they had a big fabrication and, and software system out there. So every summer, uh, that's where I would be. I'd be in Oregon uh, working there. And Intel scholars also received support for their education. So they, they paid part of my tuition. And then when I graduated, Intel had just created a graduate focused program. People in secondary school or, or um, people in, in grad school can participate in these programs. And they were focused on taking a professional that has a good sense of what they want to do. But in business, there's a full range of how you can use your, your training. You can focus on the technical aspects. You can focus on the sales and marketing aspects. You can focus on the business aspects, the material aspects. So to, to give you the opportunity to choose, uh, Intel had a graduate rotation program. So you went right. through and basically got training in all of these different spaces. You got to spend, it was like a two-year program where you, you go to all of these different programs. And then at the end, you choose the one that you want to focus on. And so that's how I ended up at Intel. By the way, Intel is, in my opinion, at the time, probably one of the best managed companies in the world. It was helmed by Andy Grove at the time. I think he's probably one of the best leaders and managers that I've ever seen. And so I watched him and uh, his co-founders and, and uh, Gordon Moore, who was still um, very much alive and kicking and shaping the future of chips and everything. Incredibly well-run company. And I, I learned a lot of my management skills, leadership skills uh, in the early days uh, from that experience. Yeah. I want to highlight for a minute to folks that, you know, a lot of folks listening share with me that they are on a journey to discover themselves or rediscover their career. Maybe they're, you know, trying to come out of college, but most are mid-career or early mid-career thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't have gone into tech. Maybe I shouldn't have gone into banking. <laughs> this climate thing, especially with IRA, this climate thing is, is a huge opportunity. And they would look at companies like Saluna and think naturally, I want to go join and work with John. And I will say in most folks early in their career, look, companies like Saluna are an amazing place to work. But if you don't have, and, and in my career, one of the things I regret coming out of grad school, I wanted to go to like a Clorox or one of those companies and do a two-year rotation. Not because I loved the idea of product, product um, consumer packaged products, but because the training itself, like you just pointed out, is unquestionably the differentiator for leadership, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or not, like to understand how this big company runs, 
so if you look in our industry and we see this through a lot of Suncast interviews, folks who chose to go to PG&E because they want to understand how the power industry works rather than going to a solar developer. And then right. after three, four years at PG&E, Andy Tang is a great example. Mm-hmm. They can then spin out and now he runs all of renewables for a major company called Wartzilla, right? Like the yeah. ability to train yourself under someone else's tutelage, see how they do it. Just can't be, it can't be overstated how important that is. Absolutely. I have this philosophy that I share with, you know, young professionals and, and I'll put it, I'll put it here uh, on the tape for you because I think, I think I found that young professionals really resonate with it. See, when, when, when my parents, your parents, a lot of the listeners um, who are, who are full grown adults, parents, you know, they, they, uh, they focused on, you got to find a profession be a doctor. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I was in high school, like my, my math teacher, a lot of my mentors are like, you, you should go into pre-med. They're like, but I don't like that. I, I want to be a computer scientist, <laughs> you know, get a, get a, a, a solid profession. And you basically work for 40 hours for 40 years, you know, 40 for 40 was the philosophy. And you sort of progressively moved up the rung to become a, you know, a, a, a really important leader in one company basically. Right. So you'd go work for IBM and, and stay there for 35 years. That no longer is the pathway for uh, professional growth. I like to describe it more as a mosaic. So imagine you've got a wall with all these different types of tiles and so forth. Each one of those different color tiles is a experience that you've gained, a learning, a job, a, a profession. And what you're trying to do is essentially build the mosaic that represents you as a professional in whatever field you find exciting. And what you find is over time, your mosaic will define you in a unique way in the marketplace. You'll be really good at business development and origination because you've had a a number of different experiences doing that. Or you'll be really good at new technology and R&D, for example, because, you know, you've, you've found a host of experiences where you keep learning and growing and your mosaic becomes very attractive to potential, you know, companies that want to work with you and, and, and hiring managers, et cetera. So you really want to try to focus on looking for lots and lots of experiences, learning as much as you can and growing and, you know, take a piece of paper and draw those little mosaics. And then you want to align your mosaic with opportunities that are really tied to your passions. They are connected to what you believe you're really good at. Right. And that make you happy. <laughs> and I think that's the way to look at, uh, you know, young professionals and, and guiding their journeys. I'm so happy that we had that little foray into guidance for young professionals because it's something that I feel really strongly about. You know, it's the feedback we get a lot through Suncast. I find that many people find it very hard actually to see for themselves what that unique offering or transferable skill is, what the center of that Venn diagram is for themselves. Right. I spend a lot of time helping folks focus on it, identify it. Do you find that it is a rare trait to be able to see it for yourself? I, f- I find people also find that they have they have a hard time asking for help, seeing it. Did mm-hmm. you have other folks pointed out for you where you have particular strengths? Yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of mentors uh, throughout my career. I have one now. Um, I, I try to change them as, as I go through different development phases uh, as a professional and a person. You change, you know, you don't, you don't stay the same. You keep, you keep changing over time. Uh, all along the way, my mentors would say, you really need to focus more on this. Like this is a weakness for you, or this is an area where you should go get some experience or within your company, this is where you should be focused now because your company has changed and you, you're, still, you're, still, you're still one leadership 
you know, growth area behind and you need to yeah. go to that next rung. So I've tried to expose myself to, you know, programs, uh, peer groups, uh, anything where I can gain uh, best practices, uh, real world examples of uh, pain and mistakes that I can learn from. Uh, so that when I experience uh, things in in my professional career, I have sort of, you know, sufficient callus, if you will, to deal with with that problem, right? To lift the heavy weight associated with those challenges. Mm-hmm. And that's what helps you to grow as a leader. That's what's helped me grow over the, over the, the last two decades or so that I've been doing this. So let's talk about, uh, you know, going back to your, uh, we are going to get back to Saluna, I promise, uh, for those who are, <laughs> who are listening. But believe me, this matters, the things that we're discussing about John's background, uh, because I think it's important to be able to help you understand how to put yourself in John's shoes, why he is the right person for the role he is in. And, you know, this career journey, this architecture of, of you know, it's not, it's not happenstance. A lot of, as he pointed out, things happen by luck, but... John has chosen specific actions in his life that resulted in parabolic growth. So let's talk about that, the first early example of that. Why did you decide to leave Intel and start companies and talk a bit about the rocket ship that was Theory? Yeah, so uh, so I was at Intel, like I said, for the first couple of years there. Before I went to Intel during grad school, there were three engineers, uh, really close friends of mine. We all had sort of this, this drive to, to, to start a company, be an entrepreneur. We wrote a business plan, took it to the Cornell Business School. The professor there told us this is the first one he saw that was venture backable. And we kept pushing to you know, write the business plan and go, go, go launch this, this software company that was based on actually on our graduate research, which was um, fault tolerant computing, if you will. Yeah. And we realized toward the end that, well, Two out of the three of us, very diverse group, one from Mexico, one from Argentina, one Haitian background, had H-1 visas, so they had to go get a job. <laughs> so we couldn't start the company right away. And, you know, to shrink the story, we, we, they went to Boston to a startup. I went to Intel. But every Saturday, after about the first year, we started really getting back together and talking about how can we start a new business. And so every Saturday we got together on a call and we just talked about trends, what we're seeing in the space, what customer pain points we're seeing. And being at Intel, I can sort of see all sorts of interesting technology waves underway that were, you know, taking hold. Mm-hmm. And through that, we we distilled an idea, you know, that we were really excited about. Um, we ended up having to, to pivot it, <laughs> you know, right after we, 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 we started it and found it an even better idea. And I had to make a decision at that point, you know, to leave what felt like a, a, a great upward career at Intel. So I grabbed one of my mentors there and I said, you got to help me with this problem. Can you meet for lunch? So he went to the Intel cafeteria and he did this thing, which I'll never forget. It was, it basically changed my life. He put a glass of water in the center of the table mm-hmm. and he said, John, put your finger in there. He was kind of weird. He just do the, you know, he's one of these managers make, make people do pushups on an interview anyway. <laughs> so He'd say, put your finger in there, John. I said, okay. I put my finger in the glass and he says, what do you, what do you see? My finger made a dimple in the water and says, great, pull it out. I said, all right, put my finger out. What happened now? Uh, the dimple got filled in. Exactly. We're going to be fine, son. You go out and you go get, you go try that out. And if it doesn't work out, we'll be right here. <laughs> and he was right. You know, entrepreneurial opportunities, they don't come very often. And if it's something that you're passionate about, you just got to run with it. So I, uh, within a week, I, was, I had left Oregon, moved to Boston. We started a company called Theory Center, and it was focused on essentially creating a new form of computing 
that was web focused. And when we finished all of the work and design, we lifted our heads. A lot of companies started doing that, you know, creating these new platforms. And so it was a very crowded space. And mm-hmm. so we sat back and, and thought for a second, well, let's assume that this form of computing is going to become ubiquitous. Like everybody's going to do, you know, build applications this way. What's the next thing? Like, what's the next thing they're going to need? Uh-huh. And we realized as we're sitting, you know, at a pizza shop, you know, <laughs> worried that we just made a big mistake. We said components, you know, we're looking at the pizza slices. People are going to be able to put applications together like, like Lego blocks. So within six months, we actually got investment from some of my former Intel colleagues and just started going. And I literally would go to banks and walk into the CIO's office, into the business person's office and say, this is how computing is going to get built in the future, you know? And they would say, wow, how much are those Lego blocks? And I said, (laughs) and I said, well, these, these are five bucks. The ones that you're going to buy for me, those are a million dollars. And we, we built the, you know, the business just grew really fast from there. It grew up to 15 million and then it was acquired by BEA Systems, one of the fastest growing software, enterprise software companies in history. Yeah, this is the late 90s, by the way, for those who are unfamiliar. Yeah, it is, like, this is the 90s. Yeah. And we created a new division at BEA and merged mm-hmm. our company and another company in there. I joined the management team of that on the, you know, customer facing business development side. And, and we grew that business 10x. So it went from yeah. 15 million to 150 million in less than three years. Yeah. So really ra- rapid growth. Is it right that you, you sold that business for 200 million after only two years in the market? Yes. It was a $200 million acquisition. We'd walk around saying, we don't know what we do, but there's no way we fail. You know, we just, it, so it was five co-founders. We are still very, very close friends to this day, 25 mm-hmm. years later, later. And it changed the lives, every single one of our lives uh, in that time frame. Without a doubt. Hmm. How do you hold on to something that's growing that fast? Every entrepreneur right now, myself included, is asking themselves, like, how in the heck in the 90s, what do, what, what do you, how do you divide and conquer among five co-founders and scale so fast that you can sell that business? You know, you get to 15 million, which in and of itself is, is ridiculous. It's hard. I mean, we, we, were, we were learning fast. I mean, I, I, I knew mm-hmm. nothing about being CEO at the time. I, I was... Yeah. I was uh, selected among our group as, as the, the one most qualified to take on that role. One of the co-founders was our chief technology officer. The other was the, the head of engineering. Yeah. Um, uh, the other was the chief architect. So there's, everybody had a very technical role, if you will, because that was uh, everyone's background. So I was like the main, the front man, you know, I had to figure mm-hmm. out how to raise money, how to uh, attract talent and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and what I did is I, I, uh, Cornell had this directory they used to print that basically told you where all the alumni were, <laughs> what companies they were and so forth. And I noticed that uh, there were a bunch in, in Boston and there was this one month where I basically called everybody I could get a hold of in Boston and beg them to give me 30 minutes of their time, 15 minutes, I don't care, whatever you can. And I would go in with a, with a, with a, a list of questions. How do you deal mm-hmm. with this? How do you, how do you approach this and, and, you know, financing people, all that kind of stuff. I learned so much in those sessions. I basically cold called these guys. You created your own Cornell alumni mentor. Yes, uh, effectively. Yeah, effectively. And one of them, his name always escapes me, but he told me something that I tell everyone now. And that is that if you want to be successful, he says, look, I, I just, you, you asked me a lot of questions and thanks for coming in. I wish you, you luck. But if you, if you, if you forget everything I said, remember this one thing, <laughs> try your best to remember this one thing. 
And he said, laser focus. Those two words, keep them in your head. If you want to be successful, you've got to be laser focused. You do one thing, figure out how to do one thing really, really well, better than mm -hmm. anybody else. It could be something really hard, but once you've cracked the code and you can do it, be the best at it. And that's how you build a successful company. Mm -hmm. So we did just that. We focused on developing component software for e-commerce and we were the best at it. We had the best tools, the best software, the best team. And that's what drove our growth. And, um, and ultimately that initial acquisition. What's amazing to me is this story repeats itself. After that successful venture, you've had multiple ventures. A story that stood out to me was when you guys realized that you didn't want to actually be venture capitalists and you're like, let's start another business because <laughs> people buy solutions, uh, not tools. Um, I remember you specifically said, like, figure out how to solve that pain of a customer. And you have a novel way of figuring out, at least at the time, and it probably isn't unique. It's just novel being the way that, I'm, I, I bet you learned this from Intel if I had a guess, but how did you go about basically hacking the problem statement in the insurance industry when you were thinking, I know nothing about insurance, but it seems like there's a problem here. You, you're right. We, we were, one of the companies we formed was an incubator. We were, we were investing in companies and we quickly realized like we, 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 we should not be investors. We should be company builders because we're constantly trying. We always want to be on the other side of the table and say, no, 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 hey, don't do that. You know, we're like, can we tell yeah. them that? You know? So we decided to, um, go back to our core and build a business. And we were looking at what was happening with enterprise software at the time. And it was clear that software was changing. It was becoming more about components. So the things that we were talking about, the future looking, it was starting to look mm -hmm. like that. In fact, yeah. components were not just little tools for an application, entire processes could become components. And so we started studying like, who's using this? Who's, who's you know, jumping into this game? Because we were investors, we could call companies that were seemed to be in the, in the space and ask them where they were getting traction. And there were three markets. Government. Government was looking to uh, use you know, process automation to uh, help with the growth that it was going through. Banking was the other one. There was uh, uh, this whole law framework for straight through processing that was focused on getting trades to complete within a certain amount of time. So you need a lot of back office automation. And then there was insurance, which we were scratching our heads about. Insurance never invests in, in technology early and they're focusing on underwriting. What is it about, you know, what's the macro trend in insurance that's sort of getting yeah. them to do that? And so a good friend of mine suggested that we hire a firm called Global Research that basically helps big executive recruiting companies find talent in certain sectors. So they, they, mm -hmm. they'll set up an interview with anybody with any t type of title you want. So we decided to talk to a lot of insurance people. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't know anything about insurance. And we also hired a company just to teach us kind of like the basic, we took a, took a class <laughs> learning about insurance concepts. And then we brought these people in and we told the, the global research folks to just, you know, tell them it's just an interview. And out of that interview, they could, they could help shape the future of the industry. So everybody's intrigued by that, you know? So they came in and we literally will ask them like really dumb questions. Like, so you're an underwriter, right? Yes, I'm an underwriter. Commercial lines. Um, okay. What, what, uh, what does an underwriter do? And they'd say, what, you mean, what have I done? Would you like me to go through my resume? No, 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 no. When you come into the, what time do you get to the office? Like 8.30? Okay, great. So tell us what happens after that. Like what, <laughs> how do you make decisions? What are the next steps? And as they were going along, we would ask them questions. Like what's the hardest part about that process? If you had to, you know, here, here, take this. And they're like, what's that? That's a magic wand. Wave that magic wand. What would you do differently? Is it technology? Is it, is it just a change in the process? Like what, what would you do differently? And the more and more we asked that question, we did that magic wand exercise, 
the more we started to hone in on what the pain point was, insurance was going through a big wave, their ownership was changing and making money as an insurance company, not just investing the premiums was becoming more important. And so you had to automate underwriting to do that. And no one understood how best to do that because it's such a bespoke process. So we set off to create the, the Bloomberg of underwriting. So it's a desktop that has data and workflow and communications among you know teams. So you can work on complex insurance processes. And that all came out of uh, a 18-month research process that we did. And by summer of 2006, I always like to say I, I got married twice. <laughs> <laughs> I married my wife and then I married myself too. <laughs> First Best Systems, which was the insurance solutions company I formed uh, then. And for the next decade, we we built that company into the leading provider of this type of software for underwriting. Amazing. The, effectively, the first to automate underwriting at scale. Yeah, exactly. And shape, shape that industry. Little thing. I mean, if you look at my entrepreneurial experience, Nico, <laughs> yeah. there is a pattern. And I think yeah. the pattern is, you know, I, I definitely get attracted to very complex things. I'm attracted to places to industries or new opportunities where I can grow and learn. And it always seems to be within the confluences of a big technology wave and a legacy industry. So Saluna is really the confluence between big technology waves in computing and blockchain and renewable energy that's going through its own transition. And we're creating a novel solution for a big problem. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry, Hexsolv uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. John, I'm fascinated by the, the concise way that you have of articulating the through line in your experience. 
And even that story that you gave of hiring global research, the way that you invested 18 months into defining the problem you wanted to solve, but knowing exactly how you wanted to solve it is illustrative of the kind of process that a lot of folks skip over just because they've got a good idea. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. You shared at the outset how you were brought into the development company that is Luna Holding now and began to observe the confluence of stranded assets in renewables due to, namely to curtailment, with the technology advancements that allowed for computing, microcomputing data centers uh, being built at scale or even M&A of data centers. I'd like to dig into what thought processes you were going through as you began to see and identify this stranded asset, this, this power generation capacity that arrived more or less in sync with the beginning of scale of things like the crypto economy and the computing power required for crypto and how that could provide an alternative to lithium ion or some other sort of storage mechanism as it were. Can we talk a bit about the way you as an outsider sort of looked at the energy industry and began to identify that opportunity? Yeah. As I said before, one of the things I've, I've noticed about myself is I tend to get attracted to opportunities where I can learn a lot. And I, I'm not shy about saying I'm not an energy guy. And so I didn't know much about energy <laughs> when I was invited to, you know, take the helm of, of, of Saluna in its form at the time. And so I had to learn uh, a lot. And I was learning about energy on the African continent and how hard it is to get projects built. Right. And, you know, when you really dig into it and we lived it because, you know, we had to, we had to get a project developed. What I learned was that, you know, the continent just has an amazing amount of resources, solar, hydro. If you go to sub-Saharan Africa, there's incredible amounts of renewable energy that are still undeveloped. The reason is because it's very hard for capital to come into those markets because generally infrastructure investments track uh, markets that are expanding, right? And so you want to participate in the growth of those markets. And so uh, low-cost capital comes in, you build roads, airports, <laughs> all sorts of infrastructure to support the economy such that it can grow. And en energy is a big part of that. In some of these markets, some of these countries, the economy isn't big enough to sort of support hundreds of millions of dollars coming in from pension funds and infrastructure funds. And that's why I think it was BlackRock. They had a group called Black Rhino or something mm -hmm. like that. And it, it was this whole initiative to go attack the African continent. And they eventually shut, shut the business down because what they realized it was really hard to get projects built for two reasons. One was obviously just a regulatory process, you know, negotiating for, for land leases and all that kind of stuff just takes a tremendous amount of time and development costs explodes. The second was, let's say you could build a power plant, who the off taker is, you know, is going to be challenging, right? Traditionally, you'd want to have, you know, governments pay your PPA because they're AAA and, you know, do that. Or these days you get commercial off takers. And what we realized was that um, in some of these markets, none of that is really available. And so building power is a real challenge because you've got this chicken and egg problem, like the economy isn't big enough and you need to deploy, you know, these power plants. So what we begin to realize was that if you integrated the off taker of the energy with the energy project, that could be a way to catalyze development of, of renewables because you bring the power need with the, with the power plant and you can essentially incubate 
the infrastructure until the economy, you know, let's say you build a hundred megawatt plant, you don't need a hundred megawatts because the economy is not big enough. It needs 30 megawatts. You use the other 70 for this offtaker. And then as the economy begins to need more power, you can send more power to the market. And that's what I learned just starting to study the space and understand the real opportunity here. And 2020 shifted that a bit, right? So that's what we were building in Morocco is this vertically integrated approach. 2020 shifted that perspective a bit because building power plants take a, take a long time. What I didn't realize is I'd often be in these meetings, Nico, and people would say, and I'd say, okay, so how, how long do you think it'll take us to finish that study? And they'd be like, six months. I'm like, six months? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Six months. Like in software, I can build a whole company in six months and have customers. Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, uh, John, that's actually pretty fast, you know? Yeah. And so time scale, I realized was different when you're, you're talking about energy project development. And so we started thinking about, do we always have to build the project to prove out this business? Can we solve a real problem? And that's where we shifted our focus back to, you know, what I did in insurance, where I went back to just primary research. We think there's a wasted energy problem. Is this wasted energy problem just an Africa problem because of everything I just talked about? Or is it a, a problem for developed countries too? And so we spent six months, you know, while we were all locked up in our homes, calling schedulers, power plant companies, uh, grid operators, infrastructure companies, and just having open conversations. Hey, here's, we've got this, this, this idea, this notion. We think it's a big thing. We think we've got a solution to it. Do you think it's a good idea? And do you think it's a big idea? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think it's big enough for us to go after it? And we just kept hearing us, you know, resounding, yes, yes, this is a big problem. Here's where the problem is. Here's how much money you, you could lose. If you guys have this, so let me get this straight. What you're saying is you want to bring load to generation. And we're saying, yeah. <laughs> and they were, they were like, it was kind of one of those, like, mm-hmm. why didn't I think about that? Right. And this is a brilliant idea. And if you could do something like that, that's huge. And then we just turned that into a, business idea that we then began executing on, you know, inerts. So that's kind of the, the development of the idea from lived experience, essentially. Thank you for that. Is it an oversimplification to say that they're green data centers specifically in the way that consumers or, you know, non-engineers might think of data centers right now, meaning huge buildings that Meta, Google, Amazon, Microsoft build to service the sort of the internet back office, the place where data is stored and, and routed? Or is there some other way that you would want folks to think about it? And I think perhaps right. here might be a, way, a, a reason to introduce the very idea of computing and how, what it is that you are trying to compute in these data centers, if that matters. When I use the term data center, or when we would have these calls, the first thing I would do is I would say, before we say anything, we're going to use the term data center, we're going to use modular data centers, but we want you to, we, we need to disabuse you of this vision in your head of when we say data center, what we mean, right? Typically data centers are large monolithic buildings. They're super cooled, very expensive to build, and they're designed to be on 24 seven. So I'm not going to take this giant building <laughs> and move it, you know, behind the meter with this power plant. Actually, what I'm doing instead is I'm redefining what a data center is. What if I, I said, because, you know, one, one of the things we learned in, in developing our Morocco project, which was off grid to start out, was we had to create a data center that could match 
its consumption to the production of the plant. So the data center had to be a very flexible beast, if you will. And it had to be modular in the sense that we can build it really big by combining these smaller modular units together. And then we had to rethink the type of computing that we would put inside the building. This computing has to be also flexible, right? And so Saluna data centers are purpose-built to be data centers that are not on 24-7. They're flexible in nature. They use excess energy and efficiently convert it to what we call batchable computing. Any kind of computing that's really intensive can be put to sleep, is resilient to power loss, essentially, that doesn't require a lot of state, if you will, like remembering you know, information about somebody, that sort of thing. And it turns out there's lots of different use cases that can be applied to that uh, video re rendering, certain types of scientific research. If I want to run a model to determine what, what movie to show Nico, you know, next after he finished, you know, you know, watching his show here, that model is running and that model can run anywhere pretty much and generate the, the, the recommendations. Those are the types of applications we're running. And then we said, okay, what if we built a large footprint of these data centers all around the world? Then we can build a software layer on top of that that actually creates a, a, a meshing so I can move those jobs to the different data centers to optimize the production. When power is lost, I can move the job to another location. These are the types of ideas and concepts we started to think about. And, you know, as we were doing our research, we came across a professor, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Chen. He's actually on our... He's been on our podcast. He actually studied this curtailment issue, former head of research for Intel, returned to teaching and university to understand what's going to happen with Moore's law, law. And if computing becomes very commodity, then you could sort of place it anywhere and do different types of applications. And when he uh, first joined the University of Chicago, there was a talk that was given by uh, the head or founder of Invenergy, who was, a, who was an alumni. And he started talking about the fact that he was building these, these big wind farms and solar plants. And most of the time they weren't spinning. Like, you know, he would drive down, you know, drive down one of their farms and the turbines were just sitting there not spinning. And even though the wind was blowing <laughs> because the, the grid was unable to use the energy. And so uh, Professor Chen started thinking about this and he actually went out and spent time with the, with the, 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 the ISOs and the grid operators. And he, what he learned was that they do have this, this mismatch that starts to happen as you add more intermittent power. And he tried to think about, well, what could the solution be? Do you just build big monolithic data centers where the renewables are and put them where the renewables are? And would that allow you to, to, to integrate more renewables? Or what if you put what he calls dispatchable data centers, data centers that the grid can turn off on and off to increase load or reduce load? Would that be a way to increase renewable penetration? And what his research showed, and the grid operators gave him data and everything to do that, and he put it in a supercomputer. And what he found was, actually, if you build monolithic systems and put them with, with wind farms, which is sort of like the most logical thing for you to think, it actually makes it harder for you to integrate renewables because that facility is, is meant to be 24-7. See, <laughs> so it's not flexible. But if you put these flexible units in strategic parts of the grid, actually the grid could absorb a lot more renewables. And it, and it was a significant amount more. And he felt that that was the future. And so when we found him, he's like, 
oh, there's another one of you guys. And like, this is, this is interesting. This is, this is, this is, this is fantastic. This is what I've been talking about. You know, we were fascinated too. So we had sort of research justification for this is something that's, that's real. We started out talk, calling our, our, our facilities dispatchable data centers, but then nobody understood what the hell dispatchable was. <laughs> and so we, we moved to a simpler, people understand like batching things and stuff like that. And we use that term now. That's the whole process, the research that we did there. God, I love that. Do you focus on providing the data centers? I've got a few questions that, mm-hmm. that I've, I've sourced through a few uh, friends of mine who helped me think through this and you know, cr- credit to my friend Ryan, who also like has done a bunch of distributed generation development with some power and others yeah. for some of these questions. But I'm wondering, uh, as is he, do you focus on providing data centers, actual infrastructure, or are you a market maker bringing data centers and off-takers and producers together? Can you clarify just for those who maybe still don't get it, what the, not necessarily core product, which is the computing is, but like who owns the asset and how do you as Luna interface in that transaction? We focus on being a digital infrastructure company. So at the end of the day, our goal is to build, own, and operate the assets. We go to the power plant. We want to build a facility behind the meter with you here. That facility is, be- is going to become a solution for your problem, but it's also the asset base or platform for our computing business. And the structure of that, of that asset or that, pro- that, 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 that data center is also a project finance structure, right? So there's equity and debt in there and so forth. And then we've got our own investment. We also operate it. We use our technology. So it's a Saluna design facility from the ground up. So vertically integrated in that way. And then once we own the facility, we can decide what we put in the building. So our model as a company is we start out with Crypto mining, for example, as a, as a revenue source, because you don't have to call any customers. It generates revenue right away. So you can put that in the building, monetize all of the, return all the capital that you, that you, that you invest. Right there on that one. Like, so are you generating your own BTC or other crypto or are you leasing this yeah. place like Amazon to create for some no, others? We, 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 uh, well, we, we, we do both. We mostly do in our industry what's called proprietary mining. So we, so we, 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 we buy the machines, we put them in the building, uh-huh. we generate BTC, we turn that BTC immediately into cash, and then we pay off infrastructure, equity, and debt, right? So we generate returns that way. And then, you know, two to three years in, we diversify the footprint of the computing in the building such that we do other things. And then that's when we bring in customers where they can bring their own equipment, or we also buy that equipment is way more expensive, but the customer you know, range of customers, right. Where, that you can get in there is, is much broader. Right. So we can do colo cloud, whatever you want to do with basically GPU cloud based type equipment for that, that target customer, which hits all those other applications. So the facility that we design is designed from day one to be a flexible design such that we can put any kind of computing in there along that range that I talked about. Whereas most you know, there's, there, there are other crypto miners that go after low cost energy, green energy, but they're primarily optimizing around the crypto mining That's use right. case and crypto mining application. Mm-hmm. And the facility is actually designed to fit, to put miners in there and stuff yeah. like that. Our facilities are more expensive to build relative to the other players, but they're designed to be more flexible. The software is designed to, to operate differently, to solve the, the renewable energy problem, but also support you know, these, these expansive applications. So we've taken our, 
whole concept and built it from the ground up? What would this have to look like to support these different types of applications? And that's what we built. Yeah, I mean, certainly hearing how you've described it there, it seems like while they're more expensive, they're, they're going to fit better with developers who themselves are looking at owning and operating assets co-located or tied to these kinds of assets. So thinking exactly. about specific developers who have aims to be an IPP, not to sell to NextEra. Yeah, they're going to own and operate their facilities and they're going to build up a whole series of, of sites and assets. And, and this is a great way to monetize their energy. I've spent a lot of time with, with Sheldon. I don't think he'd mind me mentioning sort of Intersect has this huge gigawatt scale pipeline of solar mm-hmm. assets. They're clearly looking at ways to partner on sites, co-locate sites around hydrogen infrastructure. Sheldon's been very public about that. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like Saluna offers additionality or even like a bridge between uh, what might eventually be a hydrogen economy. Where That's but, right. What I see though, John candidly is like, if it works the way it's designed and you say it is, then they may not be able to justify the eventuality of hydrogen or some other product because the Saluna computing module is so useful and profitable for them. Exactly. And we don't have the constraints in terms of location because uh-huh. we're not, we're not, we're, we're, we're uh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. you know, in phase one of our business, we generate a digital asset, <laughs> which you don't have to put on a truck and, and move carefully, yeah. or, you know, and not blow up a town on your way or, mm-hmm. or freeze it. There's all sorts of, of uh, constraints around uh, green hydrogen that only apply to certain parts of at least this country for it to be viable. Right. Whereas, you know, a digital-based solution has much broader applications, much broader flexibility in terms of where it can be placed. And remember, we built this thing to, to be in the desert mm-hmm. <laughs> in Northern Africa. And so we can pretty much put it anywhere. Wow that has stranded power. And so Makes we sense. do support additionality. We know the Intersect folks and, you know, they, they, they've talked to us and, you know, we've had lots of mm-hmm. folks like them that have talked to us about, you know, green field opportunities, yeah. for example, that they know will be challenged with this problem. Sure. And those projects may or may not pencil out for that very reason. And so our existence therefore is, helping that to happen. So you're right. We really see ourselves as, um, as a way to drive additionality. Yeah. I mean, a reasonable smart developer who's coming out of AES or next era or Invenergy, mm-hmm. Primergy, like these guys that have built many gigawatts around the world are not mm-hmm. going to look at a like one-to-one partnership with Saluna. It's not the only arrow in their quiver, so to speak, but it gives them to that, to the word we've been using here, additionality. I mean, it seems like this mega project largest in the world with energy storage that Primers is like, I want, I want to talk to Adam now and say, what, you know, what do you, how are you thinking about data centers? Like you're in the middle of the desert, Las Vegas, great location that others are already utilizing for data centers. You know, uh, how are you thinking about crypto mining? These are obviously conversations that I may or may not be able to bring to the Suncast platform, but uh, in terms of publishing them, but this, the conversation with you, and as I mentioned before, like one I recently published with Shannon Miller from Mainspring, Mm -hmm. remind us that the narrative that we see in the media that, Oh, energy storage, as you pointed out from the, from the Texas uh, conference you went to, energy storage is the solution or transmission. One of those two, we're going to figure that out, is a solution to solar and other renewables not being intermittent anymore, right? Providing a true baseload power. So let me ask a question about the uptime. 85% or, or, or so is, I think, what you publicly dis- discussed. Yes, and yes. You, you said that 85% here. 85% is our minimum threshold, mm. yes. So it's the minimum threshold. 85% is the minimum. You will only, you will go down to 85%. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go down to, uh, well, in any given moment, we can go down to zero. Mm. But what I'm saying is across the year, if you look at the facility for the whole year, so it's 85% up we're time. up 85% right. of the time. Yeah. Which is usually people are looking for nine nines, right? Like, um, yeah, 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 exactly. Looking for five nines, nine nines. Right, five, no, what's, and, the, what's so special about 85 versus 60 or some else, something else? Like, how did you get to that economic sweet spot? It's our calculation in our experience, different markets mm. and how, how much you need to be up to, to, to you know, to, to pay back your capital, your, your capital investment okay. in, in a reasonable amount of time to have your IRRs be in the range that they need to, to be. We're very, uh, is that specifically tied to BTC? Yeah. BTC. Yes, exactly. That makes a ton of sense right there. Like if you're, if you're market maker, the way that you, the, you not your market maker, but if you're, if your repayment plan is specifically mm-hmm. tied and right now exclusively tied to all you know, what you said, mm-hmm. BTC, uh, mm-hmm. is there, is there a, a near term future where it might switch to ETH or something else? No, we, we don't, well, we, we, we have ETH in one of our facilities, but not yeah. anymore <laughs> with mm-hmm. the, with the shift. So we're primarily BTC because yeah. it's big enough for what we're doing mm-hmm. and okay. we understand the, the dynamics of the market uh, pretty well. As I said, it's a boost bootstrapping mechanism. What we want to do is invest in the facility and get all of our money back in three years or less. Mm-hmm. And so for a data center, that's unheard of, but that's kind of how we want to architect it. Once that thing is you know, fully amortized and paid off, then now we've got, you know, the ocean in front of us in terms of what we could do with that, with that asset, right? So we could now go to different markets and the, the, the new capital expenditure we put will primarily be computing, not the infrastructure. Right. And so now we can mm-hmm. look at markets where we can leverage the fact that um, the infrastructure is paid off yeah. and go after those markets. That's our strategy. What alternatives to computing or throwing it into a lithium ion battery concern you right now that developers are taking that are credible alternatives and, and potentially like stand in the way of every developer saying, I'm going to have a Saluna, uh, you know, uh, computing, um, system on, you know, half of my portfolio. That's a good question. So having come from the insurance space, there are very big parallels between insurance and the energy industry. Number one, they're huge industries. They play a big role on a global basis. And number two, they're small communities. But number three is they're very risk averse, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I like to say insurance companies are, are, are risk managers, not risk takers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the energy space has been, uh, has basically been built on project finance, right? So project finance by na- by definition is designed to mitigate, basically squeeze, you know, risk out to zero. Yeah, And so the result is that uh, the industry only sort of values solutions or technologies that are proven technologies, bankable, which is probably the key word yeah. to use there, technologies. And so that that just defaults them to things like uh, batteries. So mm-hmm. BEZ is, is something we've seen. And the funny thing is, is BEZ is the, the common thing, you know, we're compared to, mm-hmm. but very often <laughs> we've seen a few projects where there is already a battery back there. Right. And it didn't work, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it hit all the risk profiles, but yeah. it didn't solve the problem. Got it. And so they're like, maybe you guys can solve it, you know? And so I think it's just what I learned in my experience in other industries is it takes time mm-hmm. to build up enough proof points, examples of successful projects. Unfortunately in the crypto space, there's lots of failed projects. And so most of the time I have to come in and demonstrate that I'm not wearing the same coat as the, you That's know, the, right 
the guy or gal that was in the room before me and say like, we're not like, like those guys were trying to solve this real problem and, and yeah. our background is different. And so we're compared to that. Um, we're not often compared to transmission to be, to be honest, because everybody sort of understands that transmission takes a long time. It will eventually potentially help. Yeah. And then more recently we've seen folks that eventually want to try to put, you know, a hydrogen project or some other thing back there. So we do see that a lot. We see financial solutions to their problems like VPPAs that could mm-hmm. that could address their issues. Those are the things that we typically compete with. And I think where we win is just around the shrinking of time. It's mm-hmm. like, how fast can you get this up such that it's monetizing my power? Because my PTCs are running out. Oh my God, this is so amazing because like, that's like, our argument as a renewables industry against fossil fuel. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how fast can I, can you get guys get this up? This makes a lot of sense. Like you guys really know what you're talking right. about. We get that a lot. Like, you know, first we get, why you ask so many questions? Then, then they, they, they see the, the, the output of our uh, questions and we give them a curtailment assessment, which is the primary way in which we demonstrate what our data center could do for these folks is to um, take their data, do a curtailment assessment, and then mm-hmm. basically show them a projection of what our facility will do, it's always very compelling. Mm. And then it's like, okay, now let's just structure something where we mitigate our risk and have you guys provide credit support, whatever needs to, you know, the traditional project finance stuff. And then we go from there. So that's, that's been what we've seen. You know, John, as I go through this, I'm thinking in my sort of entrepreneur and coach brain, like how do we express to someone like the process of product market fit? But I guess a question that, perhaps it's still lingering. It's not like how'd you choose data centers, but outside of you being an obvious choice, uh, Michael and the Saluna team, because of your computing background, mm. who else was critical in helping you get to a realization that you have something that would likely be product market fit, right? Is it, um, there's both the intellectual ascent and understanding as well as the practical realization. And by that specifically, perhaps what I'm trying to get to is you had to come in, you already had probably adopted some team members, but you have to build a, a core team that can go test this thesis, prove it out, and then be able to take it to market. Who did you put on that team? Who was the, you know, the right wing versus the forward versus the keeper, if you think about kind of a football team? No, I do. I do approach it very much that way, depending on the market we're going after. I really try to look for talent that, that that's going to be key. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Phil Ong, for example, who's on our team is responsible for origination. He's just he's got an incredible way of connecting with people, building relationships, but at the same time, he's got a really strong analytical mind. So mm-hmm. he can take, you know, complex, you know, regulatory processes and boil them down to find the insights that we can use to, to build our, our, our whole structure to our model. And, you know, he's, he's incredibly tenacious, uh, Larby Ludi, and he came from the private equity space. And so he was used to forming a thesis to, uh, go after a market, either in an M&A, M&A or organic, mm-hmm. uh, way. Larby Ludi, who's heads up energy for us, incredible entrepreneur, was the original founder of the development company that we bought in, in, uh, Morocco that was working on the, the wind farm there. Um, he is an incredible engineer. He's got a, a, a fantastic mind, un- understands energy, understands energy flows. Mm-hmm. He was pivotal to us understanding how to create this symbiotic relationship between 
a data center and computing facility. Um, he, you know, dissected the BTC, you know, space uh, mm-hmm. along with Phil. Mm-hmm. And the third gentleman who I, who I actually, were, I was peers with um, when we were in a CEO forum together, his name is Dip Patel. And Dip came from Lockheed Martin. He built radar systems, which are essentially sort of hardened data centers that you place out in the field. And um, he is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life in terms of his ability to solve really hard problems. He's never perturbed by a hard problem. Actually, it, it's, it draws energy into him. How do you crack the code on this thing? He was the guy who would you know, build teams to go after big government projects and markets, mm. you, know, you know, military contracts. And his understanding of, of uh, data centers, uh, thermal flows, you know, the scientific method. So he, he's, he's, uh, he's often, you know, coined for saying, well, how do you know that that's true? We need to go and build a lab and, 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 and test these machines because there's no data out there that, that justifies what, what happens to these machines if you turn them on and off, you know. Mm. And that's like the core team. And then we've expanded that with just incredible operators and so forth that I can take another hour <laughs> going through. But yeah. that core team was really the nucleus that we needed to execute on not just, you know, how do you build power in Africa, but just also to redirect our focus around how do you take all the learnings from developing that project mm-hmm. to go build a new product that's likely to have strong mar- product market fit in the energy space. So you, you essentially have a, an interesting mix of people who are lifelong learners, you know, really bright and just incredibly, incredibly tenacious. I love that. Lifelong learners, incredibly bright and incredibly tenacious. Yeah, you got to be, to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, those are at least the minimum ingredients, you know, mm-hmm. because you've got to be open, you know, yeah. and ready to learn. I like to say uh, the best entrepreneurs are learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot. The best entrepreneurs learn-it-alls. Yeah, I'd like say, you know, CEO should be, you know, you should be a learn it all, not not know it all, you know. Was there any advice early in your beginning to understand the energy industry itself that mm-hmm. you would not have been able to get this far without? And where did that come from? Oh, good question. Uh, so first thing I did is I said, Hey, who who's the energy expert? I mean, we got we got Larby, no no question. Mm-hmm. And how how can I augment that? to get a, a broader sense of just about everything. So I called, um, I was on the board of a, a company actually that was focused on uh, pandemic analytics. <laughs> and the CEO of that company, actually one of his prior um, roles was he was um, he was an operator at a, at a, at a, a, a large solar mm-hmm. uh, company. And I called him and I said, who is the best person you know in the energy space mm-hmm. That's that has experience building large, complex uh, projects, you know, large, complex companies, et cetera. And he introduced me to a gentleman called uh, Sanjeev Kumar. Sanjeev is probably one of our longest standing advisors in our company. Incredible, um, you know, energy uh, expertise. Um, he was at Sun Edison, Terraform Energy, yeah. um, Occidental. He is a market maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. this guy. You know, like when people want to do big things, he's one of the first people they call, you know, mm-hmm. and he's just been an incredible sage for us. You know, even to this day when mm-hmm. we have to, you know, crack the code on something or think about how to approach a market, 
Yeah. It's just, he's just been incredible to be able to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. For, for um, those who you know, don't immediately recognize he was the CFO that took Enphase public, that's sort of worth noting. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He took yeah. Enphase public. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was a, I mean, he's, the stories he's told me, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll forget more, you know, than I'll, than I'll remember, but they've, they've all, uh, had huge and made huge impressions on my growth as a professional in the energy space, because you have, you know, this, this just incredible, uh, advisor. And by the way, I, you know, you know, you know, I, I write a lot about being a CEO. And one of the things yeah. that I, I, I often like to say is it's okay to make mistakes, you know, as a CEO, as a management team mistakes, you know, that that's information. Like you're going to, you're going to feel pain, all of that kind of stuff, but it's not okay to make unoriginal <laughs> mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, make original ones, you know, like no way I ever thought about that. And the way to make, the way to have your mistakes be more original is mm-hmm. to go spend time with people who've made lots of mistakes, you know, who've learned a lot. And, you know, Sanjeev has been that person for us. He's, he's just, um, it's been fantastic. I love it. I would love to have Sanjeev on the show for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. 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 You got to come on Sanjeev. That's right. Uh, he's now, he's now the CFO of, uh, of Enchanted Rock, I guess is a sustainability company, yeah. um, or resilience company, I guess is a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we still, we still engage and, uh, you know, he's just, he's just a fan, fantastic, um, fantastic asset to us. He's, and he's become a, a great friend too. What do you nerd out about when you're not thinking about energy systems? <laughs> uh, I read broadly. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time reading about uh, leadership. I read about, uh, uh, mental models. Do you read Farnham so, street? What's that? Farnham street. Yes. Yes. Farnham Street is, uh, is awesome. yes. I, I read everything Shane Parrish writes and, and I read and I, and I have his, I have his the book. whole series of his books, you yeah. know, so the, the books behind me in our earlier recording that those are, those are the three mental model, um, the great mental model books that he, he published with, uh, automatic really, yeah. w- really, really well done. Just fantastic. Super well done. That's actually, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to those. Yeah. I've been reading, I've been reading, uh, uh, Richard Feynman <laughs> lately. Ah, fascinating you know, back, I'm reading, I'm reading sort of the, um, uh, are you kidding? Mr. Feynman, Mr. Feynman or something like that, uh-huh. which is more almost like a, a memoir, but you're learning a lot about sort right. of like how to think differently, you know, uh, in, in that read, what else do I read? Um, I like reading about failure. So I like reading about companies that mm. were successful, but I also like reading about companies that, that had challenges and, or company growths just so I can listen for well, sort of how they learn through the mistake and, and, if you're following me on Twitter, you know, I'm reading David Goggins book, you know, you can't hurt me. Can't hurt me. <laughs> uh, that's all, that's all about, you know, that's all about learning from pain and, and using pain as a, that's using, right. you know, pain as a, as an asset, you know, and, and, and really using it to power you through, you know, cause it's, you know, when you, when you're fighting the fires, there's only one way through, mm-hmm. it's through <laughs> one way out is through, <laughs> you know, I'd love to know with regards to the way that you carry yourself day to day, the way that you think about organizing your time. Are yep. there any particular morning or evening routines that contribute to it um, mm-hmm. in terms of, terms of creature of habit? And then uh, apart from that, is there anything that you would consider a consistent practice that has given you incredible leverage or yield in your work? Yeah, good question. Uh, yes, I have developed more rituals, I'd say in the last five years or so. I feel like I had a lot before, but I've become much more conscious about it. Um, mm-hmm. One is I, 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 I try to do some form of exercise, at least 10 to 20 minutes a day. 
And I usually do it in the morning after I finish all the routines, getting the kids to school and everything. So right before, like I change into my, my get up to go to work, I'm doing something, doing some pushups, doing some kind of calisthenics. I got a Peloton at home. I use that. Um, today I ran for three miles, came back, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and then before work or some point during the day, I carve out say five to 10 minutes to do essentially a journaling ritual. Mm. So I'll write, um, I call it the rose thorn bud. Mm, Rosebud thorn. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, you know, you know how they say like everything, everything you know in life, you learn in kindergarten. So my daughter (laughs) gets rose thorn bud. She's like, you know that dad? I'm like, you know that? (laughs) That's awesome. I do that with all my coaching clients. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So rose. Let's teach everyone right now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a rose is something you're, the whole idea is you want to write, write down, you can, you know, write it down. I, I use Evernote because I want to keep all of this stuff, you know, maybe learn from it down the road. So a rose is uh, something you're grateful for, mm-hmm. something you're happy about, um, something that happened. And you want to look at what happened like yesterday. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, you're generally trying to look at yesterday. And if, if, I, if I miss a couple of days, I look at, I say, what happened this week? So rose is something you're grateful for. A thorn is something that's hard, um, something you're still working through, something that's still a, a challenge for you, an insight, a learning. Uh, bud is something you're looking forward to something that's about to happen today, something mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you're, you, you expect to be grateful for. And I try to meticulously write those three things down. I can't tell you how therapeutic it is because often as leaders, we're so much in our head. This is a space for me to process those things. The more I write them out, the more I, I figure out what, especially in the thorn section, like what am I dealing with right now? And like, just kind of stay with the, with the emotion that I'm feeling, you know, it might be, it might be, uh, it might be anxiety. It might be, um, frustration. It might be, you know, anything that's, that, that, that's happening at the moment and just kind of stay with it and try to get to like the core essence of sort of, you know, what's happening there. And yeah. so my thorn sections will dig into that. Sometimes they're bullets and sometimes they're the whole, they're, they're whole paragraphs. Mm. So that's the rose, that's, that's rose thorn, thorn bud. I do that as often as I can. It's very helpful. And then the last thing at the end of the night, I'll do anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes of, of, uh, of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the, the waking up app. I also use uh, headspace for a while. I switched to waking up because, um, Sam Harris has done a great job of going beyond the actual practice of meditation to the mm-hmm. philosophy and then an application of your life. And he's got different, um, series of content I, th- I think it's, it's, it's super well done. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be just walking down the street and I'll listen to one of the you know, during my, um, my, uh, my walks. Oh, that's the other thing I do. So because we've become so connected to screens these days because of the fact that everybody's, um, used to zoom and other, you know, name, name, name your, your, your video conferencing platform. Uh, I usually plug into my, um, calendar, two key things. Um, one is just a, I call it DNS do not schedule. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a slot in the calendar where Deep I just work. get up from my computer mm-hmm. and I leave the house or the yeah. office and just go outside and just walk. Um, I try not to continue working on the phone. Sometimes I don't, I fail at that, <laughs> but I'm just outside walking and getting some oxygen in the lungs and just thinking through things or just, you know, listening to a meditation, continuing to read a book or something like that, just turn off for a second. And then the last thing I would say is I, I I've now added uh, these parts of the calendar I call deep, deep work sessions. Mm-hmm. I'll take like one to two hours, really important sort of like in the morning where I can just think, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, where I, you know, I'm not like, I'm just thinking or I'm working on a specific 
project for, you know, uh, a focused period of time and I'll turn off all of my notifications and just work uh, on that. That's usually where I'll, I will write if I'm working on a new article for my blog or I'm writing out a memo to kind of gather my thoughts about a strategy that we're thinking about just to process how I'm thinking about it. I find that th those deep work sessions to be great. Or if my team, you know, has a to-do where like, John, I need you to review this. This is like where I can just consciously do that and get it back to them. So deep work sessions is, is really important. Those are, those are the, the, the handful that I've found to be really useful lately. Is uh, DNS time um, specifically? Yeah, DNS, do not schedule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how, how much time do you carve out for that? Uh, I, the, the DNSs can be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Gotcha. Um, 30 to 60 minutes. Deep work, deep work, I try to put a bigger block. You know, Three to four hours. They, they can be a, a, oh, you said one to two hours. That's right. Yeah, they can be one to two hours. Yeah. yeah. I want to point and, back uh, to something you said just to um, put a pin on the importance of the rosebud thorn. And, and this mm -hmm. I do talk a, a fair amount with my coaching clients about. Um, some, some of coaching, which I don't know, we, I would love to have had a longer conversation about kind of how, how you have you leveraged mentors and coaches, if you've paid for coaching, things like that. But mm -hmm. the, imp the importance of coaching people forget, it's not to, it's to help you get through the struggle, um, not necessarily give you the answers. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Yeah. And this Rosebud Thorn is a personal reflection. Mm -hmm. um, Ziglinger has a famous quote, gratitude is the healthiest of all human emotions. The more you express mm -hmm. gratitude for what you have, the more likely yes you will have even more to express gratitude for. Yes. So true. Love yeah. Yeah. Taking, taking a moment to be grateful for what you have. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so important. It's, 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 mm -hmm. uh, it's underutilized. Well, John, I'm grateful for the time that I've gotten with you. We didn't even touch on your wonderful podcast where you ask thought provoking questions of people that, that we need to know. Um, <laughs> where can people best engage with you? I'd love if you'd leave a little, um, sort of a, a trail of interest for folks uh, of, of your podcast, your website, et cetera. How can folks best connect with you? Sure. So our website is uh, salunacomputing.com. Mm -hmm. And on our website, we just launched our new resource center. So there you can find everything, uh, all of our podcasts, our blogs, our writing, um, our snippets of insights. Uh, some of our, we also do research. So we mm -hmm. have research on curtailment and uh uh, computing and some of the things that we've talked about. So you can all yeah. find that in one place now, which is, uh, we're, we're very excited about. Mm -hmm. And then you can find us on social. We're on uh, LinkedIn. We're Saluna Holdings and uh, the Saluna Holdings page on LinkedIn. We're mm -hmm. at Saluna Holdings on Twitter. Uh, I personally am John Belazier, CEO on Twitter. So people find me there and yeah. uh, engage with me. You can you can see my latest workout. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing this 30 day challenge with, uh, <laughs> with some, so, some folks out there. I've been doing this and that's just a way to like, to create like this accountability. So I'm always, I'm always doing that workout in the morning. So that that's, that's been fun. And then I write a, a personal blog about, uh, what it's like being a CEO, especially for the first time. I find that actually lots of people who, who, who are multiple time CEOs or professionals read it. And I have a, a newsletter uh, that I publish uh, on a weekly basis too. And you can find that at ceoplaybook.co. That's, uh, that's everything. I wanted to spend time on CEO Playbook because uh, you are the mentor many people have been waiting for. And Thank you. <laughs> the great thing about that, John, is that you've taken the time and been very intentional about capturing those thoughts, not just in this interview, not just at ceoplaybook.co, but in, frankly, I used you as an example yesterday with a marketing lady. Um, mm -hmm. I said, go look at John's um, podcast, Cadence mm -hmm. and History. And it is, 
it's a masterclass for a CEO very intentionally honing their message in a public mm-hmm. domain where mm-hmm. they can be held accountable, but where they can, like the conversations we had track very similar to the one that you had with Mike Casey for a different audience on scaling mm-hmm. clean. Um, again, shout out to Mike. That interview was instructive for me and helpful for me to sort of refine my thoughts for talking mm-hmm. to you. And I'm really grateful that I don't know how you find the time with children in a full-time uh, business and um, you know board positions, but I'm grateful for it. I have one final question. And I know folks are going to probably reach out to you as well through the through the ways that you've just suggested they engage. I'm certainly going to follow you on Twitter. Uh, I know I'm following Salina Commuting. I'm going to follow the, the your personal account. Thank you. Let's end today with a bold prediction, if you will. What do you believe is the linchpin problem that we will solve to get us to a decarbonized grid by 2050? What's holding us back? What's in your crystal ball? I would say that um, it's two primary things. Two primary things. The first is we must, on a global basis, move away from the reliance on legacy fossil fuels mm-hmm. and move to the fuel that's always been here from the get-go, <laughs> Mother Nature, mm-hmm. a sustainable, renewable fuel. And I think in the next decade, it will become the dominant source of energy on the planet. The second thing is we need more non-energy people to come into the energy space. I'm starting this, you know, I'm, I'm one example of that, but I think that we need more lateral thinking to come into the fight. People who have solved really challenging problems in other industries to bring it into the climate change fight, I believe will allow us to find ideas and solutions that we never thought of because we're so locked into one tool to solve a problem by taking a lateral view, having, having insight come in from other places allows you to rethink the problem and find very novel solutions. And Saluna is a perfect example of that, where we saw an opportunity to solve a challenge that we had ourselves, but through the process, we found a very powerful solution to a much bigger problem of the space. And it's a, counterintuitive solution, right? Mm. And that people don't think of that can have very positive effects on the trajectory of the industry. So I think those two things, you know, more renewable energy in the world and uh, smarter people from different industries coming together to join the climate change fight. John Belazare is chief executive officer of Saluna. You can find them publicly listed on NASDAQ as SLNH. And He is also a CEO mentor. You can follow his musings at ceoplaybook.co and on Twitter at at John Belazare CEO. All of those, of course, are listed in the show notes, probably right there in your podcast player. John, thank you for taking the time to mentor us in real time right now. Thank you. All right, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, I am overflowing with information, knowledge, joy. I want to thank once again, John for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule from one podcaster to another. John, I salute you. I see you, man. I see your hustle. And I'm so impressed with the business that you've built. I also want to thank Mike Casey and the TigerCom team for bringing John to my attention. There are so many different businesses that we don't get a chance to know about. And so I'm grateful for folks like Mike out on the front lines who bring their clients to the Suncast platform so that we can help shine light on these amazing CEOs. 
If there's anything I wish I had talked with John about, it is the CEO playbook. It's one element of his career that really fascinates me. He, he really loves to train and help leaders in different organizations. If you are listening to this on the day of our broadcast, we are having an Ask Me Anything session today at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find the link to that if you go to mysuncast.com forward slash rl dash office dash hours rl dash office dash hours if you're listening to this much into the future we will be posting the replay of it at suncast.live the location for all of our live events in replay mode i'd love to know what was it that you most take away from this episode i mean there are so 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 many gems and nuggets here would you share with me just Send me an email, nico at mysuncast.com. Hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. Join us on the AMA. Ask the burning questions that you didn't get that I didn't think of in this interview. The thing that I took away uh, among the many, many lessons and learnings from this, and I need to probably just write a longer blog post about it. Well, two things. One, people buy solutions, not tools. John said that his learnings from successful business are if you want to start a business, start with a problem first. Figure out how to solve that pain. People buy solutions, not tools. And I really loved how he came up with his health tech startup by reverse engineering the problem, hiring a research group to go and help him interview people in the insurance industry. I mean, there's so much that we can learn about how to build thriving businesses and clean energy that can tackle climate like never before. I encourage you, I encourage you, take all these lessons to heart Put them to work in your business. Come back and let us know how you are doing with all that you're learning from Suncast. And come back next week. It's almost Christmas. We're still going to be broadcasting. And also next week, we have our live quarterly round table, the podcaster's round table that brings many of my friends together, including Mike Casey. And uh, actually, John's going to be on our quarterly round table. That's right. So join us next week for that as well. I want to say once again, thanks to our sponsors, especially our annual sponsor, SunGrow, who have been along for the ride with us to help all this year make this content free for you. You can learn more about SunGrow and our other wonderful sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you could learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It is half the battle.